and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 198, Enemies, Foreign and Domestic. Having completed their first tour, the Black Sheep headed for Sydney, Australia, for some R&R. The flights, plural, had been long, and by the time they reached their destination, the men practically collapsed into their bunks. Specifically, Pappy and three other officers, one being Lieutenant Walton, walked zombie-like into their hut. There they fell face down and didn't even notice the mess left behind by the hut's last occupiers. Sometime later, it was still night, a harsh voice and a flashlight were suddenly in Pappy's face. Do you know, Boynton, that there is an order against anyone sleeping without a mosquito net? Still coming out of his slumber, Boynton was trying to come up to speed, but at the very least, he knew that voice and hated it, and the man who owned it, one Colonel Joseph Smoak. He and Pappy had been stationed together at Pensacola, Florida, and even then, Smoak went after Pappy as he did not deem him an aviator good enough to be a Marine. Now, Smoak was the commander of the air group, and he had waited for this moment for a long time. The man with the flashlight, and obviously little else to do, continued. You know the rules around here, he bellowed at Boynton. Why haven't you and your men got your mosquitoes nets up? I've been around to all the huts of your squadron, and not one of them has got his net up. Pappy was awake now, and fortunately for everyone, he was sober. If he had been drinking, that flashlight in his face may have ended up in a place that no flashlight should ever be. So he sat there and he listened to his superior. You're the commanding officer of your squadron. You will take immediate steps the first thing in the morning to remedy the situation. Understand? And report to me as soon as you do. We don't live like a bunch of pigs down here. When the sun came up, Boynton gathered his men and gave them the scoop. Then he said, let's clean up this place. Yes, I know we did not trash these huts, and the bugs here aren't as bad as they are back at the base, but clean them up and put up your netting and use it. Yes, I also know that the huts are already netted, but just do it so we can focus on having fun. The men got to work trusting their leader. Now that that was done, Boynton headed for Smoak's HQ. Pappy had every intention of laying into the man, which would have been unwise. But Smoak, whose hatred for Pappy obviously knew no bounds, started up again when he saw Pappy's face. When Smoak's latest tirade ended, Pappy shot back with, Look at my squadron's numbers. No one can touch those, so I should be able to run my squad the way I see fit. But Smoak was able to hide behind the regulations as they backed him up. Pappy, clearly in a fight, saw that he was outgunned and outmaneuvered, and incredibly backed down. He did this for his men so they could stay here and blow off some steam. And Pappy towed the line. Still, Smoak on the next fitness report said that Pappy, though a skilled pilot, did not know how to run a squadron. Why? Because he was drunk all the time. Pappy's latest record would have dispelled this, but for now, it was something that had to be lived with. And then Pappy did something that was braver than any pilot facing any enemy. He opened up about himself. He talked about his feelings, and he searched inward, all the while being sober. For a 1940s American Marine with a drinking problem and a shitty start to life, one can't but help be impressed.
As the men settled down into their day, evening, and night drinking, Pappy somehow found a chaplain and spent many hours with him, talking long into the night. Of course, the two men talked about other things, as one is wont to do when they have their first downtime in a while. Boynton told this collared man, Apparently, I must have been seeking something, although I wasn't quite certain what it might be. And as for the priest, he would go on to say, This man seemed to possess what I needed. I was seeking happiness and peace of mind, but the way to get these eluded me. Through their conversations, it became clear that Pappy's macho persona was covering up or protecting many insecurities. Of course, this could have been the beginning of Boynton really coming to grips with his inner demons. But whatever it was about the priest, Pappy would never open up like this again. Whatever answers he got that week in Sydney would have to do. It was time to get back to the war. And that leaving was hard for the squadron, as Sydney had everything the Solomons did not. And, warned by their comrades, the pilots brought with them cigarettes and toilet paper. One, they were in short supply, and two, they were great for exchanging for other items. The men ate well, drank well, and enjoyed various types of entertainment, a few that Pappy would not have been able to share with the priest. And it seems that the young ladies of Sydney were equally enthusiastic about spending time with these young Americans. Basically, it came down to the pilots knowing that they could die any day. And as for the young ladies, their city could be overrun at any time. So it was best to make a go of it, meaning everything and anything while they could. Thus, it was on the morning of November 12th that the black sheep sat at an airfield and waited to be taken back to the Solomons. Around the squadron were cases of beer, to which security officers strode up and said, Yeah, no, you can't take those with you. Too much weight. To this, the men knew there was only one thing to do. Sitting down and probably unbuttoning their pants, the pilots opened up each bottle and passed it around until it was empty, and then they moved on to the next one. It was hard work, but dedicated men like this knew what hard work was. Soon the bottles were empty, and though one could argue that the weight from the bottles had simply been transferred to the men about to get on the plane, it was an acceptable solution. Back at Espiritu Santo, Colonel Smoak was waiting, or rather lying in wait, for Pappy. He had another trap set for the hated Boyington. First, Smoak called Pappy into his office. Then he told the shocked man that he was being transferred to the island of Vela la Vela, the northernmost island of the western line of the islands of the Solomons. He was to be the operations officer. Pappy was stunned into silence. With this one sentence, everything was being taken from him. His squadron, his position, and his chance to mete out justice to the hated Japanese. But... An order was an order, so Pappy returned to his men and told them the scoop. The black sheep to a man jumped up and told Pappy to go talk to Smoak's superior, Major General James T. Moore, the assistant commanding general of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing in Munda. Now, Pappy already had every intention of doing this, but he could not be open about it, as it would be going over the head of a higher rank, something the military frowns upon. 
So days later, Pappy just happened to bump into Major Moore, and they started to catch up. It wasn't long before Pappy was saying his goodbye to this man, as he would soon be heading out. Moore skipped right over the first five levels of anger and went for a nuclear response at the idea of anyone removing his top squadron leader. The Marines, contrary to opinion, can read reports too, and to remove a man who led his squadron through the enemy like a hot knife through butter didn't make any sense. Well, Moore knew there was only one way to deal with insanity like this. Moore went into his office. Pappy just happened to bump into him outside of headquarters, and he called Smoak. As soon as the colonel was on the phone, Moore went on the offensive. What's this about taking Boynton out of a squadron? Smoak tried to come back with something, but those words were lost forever as Moore cut him off. I don't care how senior he is. He's the best combat pilot we've got, and he's to be left in command of a squadron where he belongs. Understand? To Smoak's credit, and a bureaucrat can be just as effective as a sniper, he tried a different tact. Clearly, Boynton had left the camp at Espiritu Santo in order to bump into Major Moore, and that was a violation of the regulation that said the group commander has to be notified if an officer is leaving the area. It wasn't sexy, but Smoak still had his gotcha moment, and he guessed that even Moore would not stand in the way for a rule breaker. So Smoak had Pappy arrested. Pappy knew he was in trouble, but Moore was still his only hope. So he wrote to the Major and admitted breaking the rule. Major Moore, acting like Zeus protecting his son Hercules, came down on Smoak like a thunderbolt. First, Pappy was to be left alone, if only because of his war record. Next, the regulation, well, that was legit. But it was stupid and unprofessional to try to ruin someone's career with this infraction. Next, Boynton would stay right where he was, a squadron commander, because he and his were doing a bang-up job, and that was the only way to win this goddamn war. But it was the last stroke of Moore's that showed Smoak he had truly crossed the line. Not only would Pappy stay squadron commander, but it would be Smoak who was to step down from his position. His new job? Well, that of operations officer at Vela La Vela. You know, the very job that he was trying to chain Pappy down with. And now it was time to celebrate, Marine style. The black sheep were told that they were getting 19 more pilots. Obviously, Pappy's men were doing well, and the Marines and Navy wanted more of it, hence more men. Now the squadron was up to 40 aviators, and they would be trained in the Boynton way. But first, it was time to welcome them to their new home. And what better way to do that than a fish fry? But as Pappy was excited to begin their training, he relied on the truest way to catch a lot of fish fast. He and a few of the other veterans grabbed hand grenades and threw them into the water. Sure enough, after the explosions, fish started coming to the surface to be scooped up and fried. Probably appreciating his position even more after almost losing it, Pappy went into overdrive to get these men ready to face the Japanese in their zeros. 
Starting on November 15th, there were numerous speeches by Pappy, of course, followed by practice flights and then mock dogfights. No use getting these men and then training them just to have them die on day one. No, Pappy wanted them ready. With the basics covered on November 27th, Pappy led his reinforced black sheep from Espiritu Santo to Guadalcanal. There they refueled and flew on to Vela La Vela Airfield, which is located on the southern end of Vela La Vela Island, itself just south of Choso Island, and that is just to the southeast of Bougainville. The biggest shock for the new guys was not getting ready to deal with the Japanese, but rather learning how to survive on this island. Yes, it was beautiful, but the new guys watched as the veterans, amazingly, shockingly, put salamanders in their beds each morning to take on the mosquitoes and black ants, the real enemy of the American aviators. As the Allied position stood in the Solomons, the hated and much-attacked Kahili airfield was now only 75 miles away to the northwest on the southern end of Bougainville. And that had to be taken before the real attack could begin on Rabaul, with all its rings of AA guns and tens of thousands of troops. But besides trying to keep his men alive and bring in the new guys up to speed, Pappy suddenly found himself surrounded, not by zeros, but by Allied reporters. This was because he was closing in on 26 kills, and this would tie him with World War I ace Eddie Rickenbacker, and the Marine pilot Joe Foss, another of Guadalcanal's heroes. With his takedowns here in the Solomons, and those back with Chenault, Pappy needed just six more kills to join this very small group. To be sure, Pappy wanted this, but he also wanted the freedom to focus, to stay alive, to keep his men that way, but the reporters were making it harder and harder. Moreover, Pappy found himself in the press and at times had trouble recognizing himself. First, he was in a comic strip called Fighting Marines, and his ability in the Corsair, impressive enough in reality, became otherworldly in the newspapers. The black sheep gathered around Pappy and protected him as best they could. As the tension built, Pappy was asked, Are you going up today? Get any kills lately? He also found that civilians back home were also clueless when it came to the harsh realities of living on this Pacific island. He wanted to ask them the question, scream more like, How many months have you spent in the jungles with the heat and the insects? How many times have you had malaria? How many of your best friends have you seen killed before your eyes? How many times have you had to stay in a foxhole all night? How often do you get up at 2.30 in the morning to go to work? As the Japanese were husbanding their air power for a bigger contest short to come, Pappy had fewer chances to score more kills. This was frustrating for him, but good news for the overall war. The Japanese were letting their positions on Bougainville be attacked by air without a proper response. In fact, the Allies had landed troops on the island in early November, which gave Pappy more time to train up his new recruits. Yet, with the Allies on Bougainville, Pappy found that what his superiors needed was less dogfighting and more strafing and escorting. Again, the pilots were not keen on this as it brought them closer to the AA guns, 
but it was what was needed. So the new guys got extra time with numerous strafing attacks, hitting supply dumps, machine gun nests, barrages, and any vehicle that moved on the island that did not belong to the Allies. In mid-December, it was the Allied goal to capture and control the west coast of Bougainville near Cape Torokina. With this area under control, the fighters, that is the Corsairs, would be able to reach Rabaul, where the true unwinding of the Empire's positions could begin. Another job the black sheep were given was close air support for the attacking ground units. And believe it or not, those on the ground were not happy to hear that their air comrades would soon be flying over them. Why? As it happened during the many battles of Guadalcanal, friendly fire deaths were all too common. Fortunately, by mid-December, someone had come up with the idea of colored smoke to mark Allied frontline troops. In this capacity, the black sheep flew as low as 50 feet for accuracy and to make sure they were hitting the correct troops on the ground. Japanese troops were strafed, supply routes were left in tatters, and one group of Marines, just making sure their air brothers got it right, laid out a large white arrow pointing at the enemy's mortar emplacements. Such a target was a priority, so Pappy's men went over it eight times. It did not take long for the black sheep, as they were not shooting their own kind, to receive thanks from the guys on the ground and Boynton's men realized how important it truly was, so they took it even more seriously. Still, it was grueling work, though not as the same, of course, as being on the ground. As Captain Fred Avey put it, we usually went up every day, sometimes twice. I flew so often that I got tired of sitting down. You can't stretch too well in those Corsairs, and even today people ask me, why do I stand so often? And with that, a pattern was set. The pilots would strafe troops or ships exiting Bougainville, and then at night, it was time for drinking, when possible, and for silly songs to be sung as they were made up on the spot. Still, the schedule never seemed to end, and soon, the black sheep were back to square one, being exhausted. It came down to dealing with AA guns during the day and the harsh jungle at night. Yet it was the drinking part that concerned the black sheep. The last thing they needed was their leader getting himself hurt, or worse, in trouble with his love of the bottle. But it was the very intensity of their schedule that helped keep Pappy on the up and up. He, like his men, simply did not have time to get into trouble, and their persistence paid off. Bougainville soon became an Allied possession. Now, it was time to focus on Rabaul, the enemy's bastion, 300 miles to the northwest, which meant, first, the skies over the Japanese-held island had to be cleared. It was time, once again, for the black sheep to step up. <laughs> ¶¶ 